comrade. What now? Straight forward conversation. Okay. Nice. That was a little creepy, but I'll take it. <laughs> what, what was so creepy about that, dude? I was I trying to know. enunciate. You you enunciated very well. I just imagined you holding a very intense direct stare into the pit of my soul. <laughs> like just maintain just the most uncomfortable kind of eye contact with me as you were saying it. That's what I envisioned in my mind's eye. Nice, man, because that's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> right, right. Well, you achieved, you were completely able to penetrate the very depths of my soul <laughs> with the tone of your voice. There awesome. we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the story within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I am the other co-host. My name is Drew. How's it going? My name is Drew, and I am real cool. So you weren't going to jump into a 1980s-style urban hip-hop rap? (laughs) Uh, I wasn't prepared for it, and I've always been really bad at freestyling, so I'm afraid we can't do that Run DMC thing tonight. Because yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just got to throw your hands up in the air and wave them like you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> there was something fun about that early era's era of rap, man. It was just... uh. It was, it was a lot of party, age, man. It was <laughs> funk. <laughs> well, anyways, this week's episode, we are continuing our read-through of Deadly Class. That's right. If you have been waiting for that time of the month, we have arrived. We have arrived it with it. We have arrived at that time of the month. Exactly. <laughs> We're, well, I'm not going to go there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Tell the good people, Drew, a, a little bit about the credits behind the the creative people behind Deadly Class. Tonight, or this episode, I should say, we are covering Deadly Class Volume 8, Never Go Back. Deadly Class, as always, is co-created by writer Rick Remender and artist Wes Craig, colored by Jordan Boyd, lettered and logo designed by Russ Wooten, and edited by Sebastian Gerner and Bria Skelly. Volume 8 collects issues 36 through 39, as well as Killer Set, the Free Comic Book Day 2019 special one-shot, and the trade paperback edition was originally released in July of 2019. So I guess since we know what the setup is for what we normally do with this, we can just kind of jump into it. General thoughts about this particular volume before we really do colonoscopy of the volume itself. Really get our fingers in there. Yeah. Uh, Let me go get my gloves on first. (laughs) Okay. I'm ready, Albert. Are you ready? Open wide, Albert. I am bent over. I am opening wide. I am prostrating myself. I am prone. I am inviting. Uh, I am 
<laughs> I'm guessing you've never actually had a real colonoscopy. <laughs> you don't know what I like. <laughs> I will now remove my glove and leave this podcast and go back home. <laughs> I am going to refer you to a different doctor. <laughs> actually, you're not even a doctor. <laughs> you're just a guy. <laughs> I don't know why I'm having random guys do my colonoscopies. <laughs> because you want somebody who's read a lot of comic books, because that means he's got a great imagination. He knows what to feel for. I thought you were going to say, because I would rather have a friend to give me one of those than a complete stranger. That too, that too. It is an intimate experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I put my trust and faith in a friend. Yeah, and I imagine that you would be far more relaxed with a friend. Than with a stranger. <laughs> uh, I'd have to really think about that, but <laughs> for the premise of this bit, let's say yes. Because you're the kind of guy who is usually so covered up that I've only seen your legs a couple times, you know? Like, you've only worn shorts a handful of times in my lifetime that I've witnessed you. I, I feel like wearing shorts is like a once a year thing that you might do if it's extremely hot. So knowing that you typically prefer to cover yourself up as much as possible, I would expect you to prefer not to expose yourself in front of strangers, even if it is a doctor or medical professional. That's true. It's very true. I would show up to any sort of surgery with a full lead suit on, not not necessarily to protect me from various x-rays and radiation, but because lead suits are just so heavy that I would just feel an extra sense of protection and comfort. Yeah, totally, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any general thoughts about this volume, Drew? I think, to me, this volume felt like there weren't as many plot developments as some of the other volumes that we've read kind of feels like a chance to slow down the plot a little bit so that we can delve into the interiority of some of these characters particularly with marcus especially in the first issue uh, of the trade issue 36 um but other than that oh and i think it also helps that the last issue contained in this set the free comic book day one shot that one's a, a flashback story and it's not so it doesn't really advance the overall plot too much but it does give us a bit of insight into the things that we've already read up to this point so it's, it's mm. kind of nice um it also doesn't really add too much forward momentum uh, in terms of the story that we're covering. Did you have yeah. any other thoughts? Um, I guess I have thoughts that similarly follow the track that you were just discussing. Uh, I guess the thing that I'd add to it is it does feel like after everything that was built up in the last volume, it really, what we really saw was sort of a pivotal moment within the series and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a moment that forces us to 
almost catch our breaths after catch our breaths after everything that's gone on and it really does feel like when we enter this volume it is almost a volume that's dedicated to readjusting ourselves and resituating ourselves for the new i guess you could call it a status quo i like i we we've been involved in comics for so long the the term status quo sort of has lost all meaning to us but i guess in this instance it's it's a fitting way to describe what's going on here right yeah i agree with that it's not like we're getting this huge it's not a, a traditional arc in the sense that this volume is about one about the uh about moving forward one particular plot or several particular plot lines that are integral to the overall story what we're getting here are bits and pieces that are associated with the various characters and it just kind of reestablishes what the new status quo is moving forward uh from this point and and yeah that's I, I think that's a pretty fitting description of of uh, where we were moving as we enter volume eight. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But other than that, I I thought it was fun. I thought you're you're right. It it provides us insights into the characters. As I mean, at this point, we're in volume eight out of twelve, so. I, I don't know if we're quite necessarily at the end of the story or, 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 you know, the penultimate arc or arcs of the story, but penultimate, you know, penultimate, but I think we're getting semi close. Right. I, I think that's safe to say. Mm-hmm. So whatever is about to happen next is, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's big stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shall we go into our issue by issue summaries and commentary? Sure. I have written notes and I'm good to go. Take it away, Albert. Deadly Class, Volume 8, Never Go Back, Issue 36. Marcus frenetically runs through a visual and emotional kaleidoscope of chaos. He revisits old friends and old places, trying to unpack his own personal turmoil, going back and forth between choosing a life of peace and or confronting his own unfinished business with King's Dominion. Eventually, we come to realize that Marcus has been tripping out on peyote, and his time has brought him to one conclusion, that he has to go back to King's Dominion. Issue 36. What do you think? What yeah. what jumped out at you about this particular issue? The artwork is what jumped out at me in this issue. I mean your your summary was succinct, but I, I feel like that's appropriate because the stuff that could be unpacked in terms of what we read in the issue is primarily dealing with Marcus's reflections and his well, it's his hallucinations that lead into his reflections and give us some insight into how his mind is working and processing everything that's happened up to this point, as well as him trying to figure out what he wants to do next. But yep. there's also something about this issue. It kind of reminds me of 
a clip show in a TV series. You know, when you have those episodes of TV, I don't even know if they do that in modern times. This might be a thing of the 90s and earlier, but every so often, a lot of these uh, long-running syndicated shows would have clip shows where they just, there might be a framing story, but for the most part, the entire episode is compiled of old footage from previous episodes as we kind of get recaps of things that we've already seen. And it's not like this issue reuses artwork or anything, but I thought that it's because it's basically Marcus running through the recesses of his own memories and his imagination and just this crazy melding of everything that's boiling in his mind. It kind of feels like there's a lot of things that we're seeing a lot of things that we're familiar with or things that we've seen happen, but from a different perspective and with some kind of hallucination, uh, hallucinatory visuals. Mm -hmm. We're getting like, if this were the first issue for a new reader, I feel like it could work as an introduction. Like obviously they wouldn't necessarily know the significance of some of the various characters that show up in his hallucination. But I, I do think that, it could work as an introduction to what you would be in store for, you know, like this is the kind of thing where I feel like a new reader could pick it up and be like, okay, like it's, I can see that it's pretty wild, uh, especially visually. And there's a whole lot of stuff going on. I'd have a lot to catch up on, but Mm -hmm. this is also something that kind of brings me up to speed, tells me uh, what the characters have been through tells me a little bit about the characters various personalities and then it ends on this extremely dramatic note where the main character makes a decision in terms of how to proceed with the next phase of the story so i I feel Mm -hmm. like in that sense it's a very complete one issue kind of story Mm -hmm. yeah you could definitely say that there isn't very much of a plot here but i feel like there's enough writing in it that makes you like it'd probably be one of the more worthwhile issues of the series to to go back to and reread like i feel like there's a good chance that down the line um reading this will take on additional significance rereading it will take on additional significance yeah yeah it's i think for the art alone it's definitely uh something where you really get your money's worth for the one issue that you get because even though well i don't even know if like west craig draws all of it i'm i'm assuming that he's mm-hmm. consistently the same artist for for this entire issue but yeah. it really is just a showcase for just the versatility and that he can exhibit right because he is just drawing in a whole bunch of different styles and laying out giving you just all kinds of crazy layouts doing all sorts of crazy things to it really captures the idea of what being on peyote is like and putting it to the page you know presuming that you're reading something where someone is just experiencing a stream of consciousness sort of experience right yeah it's a really good way to show that drug trip because i feel like so many other times we read comics and they show people tripping on drugs. It's usually just some kind of psychedelic stuff, right? So you see, mm-hmm. it's it's usually done through the colors, and 
maybe you'll see some weird imagery here and there. Yeah. But with with this issue, Wes Craig, he draws various different styles in order to communicate like the wildness of what Marcus is actually seeing in his mind. Like so many pages uh, have different styles of drawing. Even the coloring kind of changes. The mm-hmm. the line art style with the textures change. Um, it can go from more cartoony to more heavily rendered it's really fascinating like there's just different styles of artwork within this one issue within this one trip and i feel like that's something where the artist really does carry so much of the story you know he does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of presenting the massive amount of I don't I was going to say euphoria but it's not exactly euphoric but I I think just the yeah. all the things that Marcus is seeing in what I presume to be a relatively short span of time it's just like constantly flashing back and forth in his mind's eye we're really seeing all these different things from how he uh imagines his relationships or how he perceives his relationships with the various classmates uh that he's just met uh, specifically Helmut, Zenzel, and Tosawi. Um, that's pretty f- all fascinating stuff because their scenes, when they show up in his dream or in his vision, they're all pretty differently drawn with a uh, different coloring style and everything. So um, Wes Craig is the only artist credited, so he did draw the issue uh, himself, which is really impressive stuff. Mm-hmm. I I also wanted to mention that I thought it was pretty neat that they didn't really give you any context whatsoever. The story basically starts out in medias res with Mm -hmm. him, with Marcus running. So if you remember how the last issue ends, it ends with Marcus and, you know, his little band just hiding out on Tasawe's reservation. And you just had this really somber moment where... They have buried Petra and Marcus and Helmet have this brief exchange with each other. And, you know, it's just this really sad moment. And I imagine if you were reading it, if you were reading this all in one sitting, jumping from that to this moment where the issue just starts out with him running. And at first, you're not really sure what's going on. But by the time you get to the next page, you're just getting all these crazy visuals. He's at the heart of an atomic bomb blast. And then he's crawling through all these weird holes before he transforms into a rat. And he's surrounded by a giant skull with all these snakes. Um, you know, and then the vipers become his classmates that have been trying to get him this whole time. And it's, it's just all over the place. But as you read the text and the dialogue, uh, you know, he's he's also unpacking and processing a lot of things. And that absolutely makes sense because, you know, he's he's a teenager at a school for assassins and he's mm-hmm. had to do some pretty rough things. I imagine he's got some things he's got to work out. Yeah, he's got issues for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mental but, issues. Yeah, yeah. Emotional yeah, he's issues. He's got some comic book issues too. He, we we did establish true. he's a fan of comics. That too, that yeah. too. 
the the thing that I think is interesting about this volume, though, is or this particular issue is where we leave off in the last volume after everything that happens between him and Victor. Um, it felt like he had just sort of had this breakthrough where he decided where he was telling himself that essentially he had convinced himself that he did not want to use the tactics and the tools of King's Dominion because he wanted to basically be better than than them, right? Like the the entire objective of the school is to shape him into being, you know, just this awful creature that is of the world of 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 the surroundings that they have uh, shaped for themselves. So he there's that moment where he's about to kill Victor, but he decides to take the high route because you know, how do you change the world? You have to change, you know, your behavior. One heart at a time. To... Exactly. That That's essentially what he was going with. But in this volume, he's burdened by the fact that even though he can, they, they have this opportunity for a fresh start, but deep in the recesses of his mind, he knows that no matter what, they are going to be haunted by King's Dominion as long as King Dominion exists. So it's it's something that he's battling with in this issue where he's, even though he's, quote unquote, developed this new enlightened perspective, there is still a very human part of him at 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 his very core that still feels the need to respond in a very that feels the need to respond in a way that is that reverts to type you know because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day he it's it's pretty easy to talk about wanting to you know to care about love and peace and you know denouncing violence on on paper it sounds great but the world is not going to give you those opportunities. If anything, the world will constantly push back against that. And it really takes a really advanced and patient person to and committed person to really stick to that ethos and to overcome the instinctual thing, which is to just lash out in violence, right? Mm-hmm. And and I do think that that's something that we're seeing here in in this issue is just him, even though he's just had this huge breakthrough, like it almost feels like how quickly, how quick was that, that he <laughs> decided to fall back to the his base instincts, even <laughs> after all that, right? But I, yeah. I do think that that's more of a realistic inter, uh, portrayal of people, right? Yeah, because maturity times, isn't always a completely linear route exactly sometimes exactly we, we can make a, a good choice uh, and follow that up with a couple of bad choices yeah. before we get back on track people regress all the time and yeah. that's the thing that we don't necessarily realize and on top of that i think tv has conditioned us to believe that 
you know, when you have these breakthroughs or when something changes, there's a part of you that goes, well, I guess I'm changed now. So that's the way I'm going to be forever. But that's really not the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not at all. Yeah. It's more about establishing a pattern of life. That's how you know that somebody has changed when you see it over time. But it's hard exactly. to expect them to change after, you know, a short span of time because you don't really get to see their life play out. You have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. And people are going to be people and they're going to have moments of weakness. And that's just going to be a thing that happens. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Were there any specific any? scenes that jumped out to you in this issue? Mm, I think visually the one scene. So the way that it's broken down is you can tell that as he's seeing all of the characters from his past recent and, you know, less recent, he's, he's dedicating time each of them as he unpacks his his baggage right and what Wes Craig does is for each different character he does give them he does make their section unique with its uh with his own personal flavor or style and the the one section that jumps out at me is him talking or when helmet shows up right and it really it's it's really what he does is he in the previous section he's talking to maria and it's really like light pastels mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it just gets really harsh and the lines become very uh distinct and solid and it, it kind of reminds me of Daniel Warren Johnson a bit. It does. It does. I was thinking that myself. And it goes from this almost like watercolor looking, um, you know, sort of uh, presentation to just this really sharp uh, image, come kind of like a a heavy metal poster. You yeah, know? totally. And and then what you see is a helmet riding in on a three headed goat, and it's. It's just really cool to look at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did enjoy it quite a bit. Um, but I'll also mention that the section afterwards with Zenzel was also kind of cool because you go from this really harsh sort of heavy metal aesthetic to this almost ethereal, I guess you could call it traditionally, conventionally like a Christian sort of aesthetic or like whatever the conventional angels in heaven um you know images when we think of the traditional idea of what angels in heaven look like so i do think it's kind of cool because you don't really see too much all you see is zinzel kind of coming down from the sky and there's not really much in terms of backgrounds but i like how he does all this rendering here well there's this one panel in, in the middle it's on page 21 of the digital edition and all all you're seeing in this panel is a close-up of marcus's eyes as he's crying mm -hmm. and you can just see his cheeks just all the all the lines that he's put into it and you know we're constantly ragging on like david finch and rob rob liefeld for their rendering but this is good rendering <laughs> yeah it really is it kind of reminds me of i can't name the specific 
illustrator or artist. I can't name the specific period or era that this references, but it, yeah, like you bringing up the whole church thing, it definitely does give me those old Catholic art vibes, you know, like the stuff mm -hmm, that you mm -hmm, would see mm -hmm. in some kind of classical book of art. Um, it, I, I think it is something about the way he does his lines in that first panel on page 21 where the clouds are in the background, even just the way that he kind of fluffs those clouds with that style of line work and the texturing on Zenzel's white robe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that is definitely, it's really if I knew pretty. more about art history, I'd probably be able to pinpoint what yeah. that's supposed to reference, but it, it definitely looks like something familiar to me. Yeah. I guess I was going to say the first thing that I wanted to say was, like the renaissance era <laughs> but yeah i could be wrong I like, like i'm not i mean i've taken a couple of art history classes but i'm not 100 percent sure that oh, that's i did the not know you was an art historian man yeah I, I took several art history classes in college nice yeah they were uh easy a's <laughs> <laughs> you must have learned a lot that's why oh, you're able to amount. host a comic book podcast, man. <laughs> sure. Let's say that that's what makes me qualified. <laughs> it's your one of your bona fides, or however you pronounce that word. Uh, yeah. Again, well, once again, I'll, I'll take you at your word for it. <laughs> I felt like Following. so many pages have such incredible imagery. Like, even starting from the first page, the fact that they start off with what's essentially a splash page, but is actually just a small, relatively small image of Marcus against a completely white background. Then you flip it over and you see the mushroom cloud from an atomic explosion. And then he goes from there to Marcus kind of morphing into a rat, you know, the with the symbolism that the book has had with rats in King's Dominion. Uh, you see him turning into a rat. Then you see him coming his coming across a bunch of snakes, all of these snakes, which, and then these snakes have uh, instead of having a regular snake head, they have the they turn into like Shabnam and uh, and troll. So you know, just <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's a funny thing to imagine like these characters like having the body of a of a snake. But it, it totally fits everything that he thinks of those people and, and what he's seen of them over the months he spent at King's Dominion. And then uh, there's a scene later on, a couple pages after that, when he crawls out of the sewer and finds, him back, finds himself back in the city. And he starts to see that he himself is slowly transforming into a snake. And that page is pretty impressive too. That's page 11 on the digital edition. But the just the way that Wes Craig laid the panels out is pretty interesting. It's not quite um, fully symmetrical, but there's a lot of uh, just geometric shapes and he just draws within those shapes. Like there's one big image of Marcus's face as he's turning into a snake and then uh, like some of the other panels have his body uh, as he's examining his hands transforming into this reptilian scaly stuff 
And then overlaid upon those panels, there's an image of him trying to pull off his skin. Like there's just something really striking about that page and the way that Wes Craig uses these the the gutters to you know crisscross the different panels and show I don't know just it just makes it more dramatic looking somehow. It's I found quite that ornate. Pretty, yeah, it's it's quite ornate. Just the the details on all the snakes and and their skin, that's pretty crazy too. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, the one page when he meets Maria in his vision on page 16. There's a big panel there where he's kind of split, where Wes Craig kind of splits the panel um, basically about in half, with the especially in terms of coloring. But there's something about that whole big panel that reminds me of Akira and Katsuhiro Otomo. I can see it. The rubble and everything, the way that the city's all yeah. crumbling. The way that the buildings are all diagonal, mm-hmm. the way that they fall. That's totally an Otomo Akira thing. Yeah, totally. But I think maybe my favorite panel in this issue is the last panel. They're back in the real world. You know, we're we're finished with this dream, and it's just this dramatic page where Marcus gets up uh, in front of everybody and he addresses the freshman class and he tells them that they're going back to King's Dominion while he's holding a dead snake over the fire. (laughs) There's just something incredibly dramatic about that and I really thought that was a fantastic beat to end the issue on. It's... Yeah, it's. I I I was gonna say it just kind of it, it's an image that's fit for a poster. <laughs> it is, man. It's dramatic. Yeah. It's just it's one of those dramatic. dramatic, cool moments. Yeah. Uh, there was one other image that I enjoyed, which was as he's coming out of his trip. Um, Tasawe is coming for him and trying to you know, shake him back to reality. Yeah. And what we see in that image is a pretty wild and crazy looking version of Tasawe. It kind of you know reminds what? me. It reminds me. I, I, wait, you go ahead. Tell me what it reminds you of. Um, I don't know what the specific artist is, but there's, it's kind of like street art or graffiti where they have that. I've seen it on a couple of different stickers where it's, I think it's like a rat or something with uh these really big buggy eyes oh okay okay or um but yeah what were you gonna say well i was gonna say the way that he looks in that image uh on the skateboard kind of reminds me of this old ninja turtles character mondo gecko (laughs) (laughs) okay okay but in terms of the drawing style there's something about that specific drawing of Tasawi that reminds me of someone like Raphael Grandpa. I can see that too. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's just the fact that there's, you can almost feel or see every pore and divot in his skin, and you can the it arm really hairs. Yeah, it, it accentuates all the stuff that we traditionally try to erase when we think of things that are aesthetically pleasing. You know, 
What, you don't oh. like looking at my arm hairs, Albert? You don't like it when I shove my thigh in your face and you can count all the hairs on my leg? Not especially. I, I, I can't say that that's anything that's ever happened to me or anything I've ever wanted to have happened to me. Dang, man. Can't you even <laughs> pretend? Can't you even pretend to find me attractive, Albert? I can't. I have to squash this bug right now. <laughs> <laughs> we have to establish boundaries. Otherwise, <laughs> I establish a precedent that will haunt me for the rest of my days. Well, earlier you were offering to lie prone in front of me. <laughs> so I'm very confused now. That's different. You're doing something for me in that instance. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> That's the boundary. Exactly. I don't mind it if someone's doing something to me, but if I, the second that I have to do something for someone, I'm very selfish that way. Got it. Got it. <laughs> oh, man. Anything else? Or would you, you think we're good to go to issue 37? Let's check out what issue 37 has for us. Let's see what issue 37 be about. In Japan, Kenji celebrates his consolidation of power. Kwan is now relegated to being his sake bitch. For every dissatisfaction Kenji has with his service results in the removal of, of a finger. As Kenji heads out for a night of debauchery, he commands to have Saya prepared for a public execution. As Toshiro and, uh, enacts Kenji's plan, he is ambushed by Kwan, who sets Saya free, letting her know he... He wants to make amends, and he's made arrangements for them to go back to America aboard a ship. But Saya refuses to go unless she has her katana. Saya, being too weak, forces Kwan to sneak into the bar to steal the katana from Kenji. Kwan manages to steal the blade, not before blinding Kenji in, in one eye. Kwan and Saya make it to the dock when he reveals that he intends to go back to Vietnam, and he wants Saya to apologize for him to the others if she should see them again. Juan admits his betrayal to Saya, who in response runs him through with her blade and tosses him overboard. That's heavy, man. Yeah, yeah. We've uh, followed Quan since the second volume. I feel like we've had a lot of ups and downs with him. There was a part of us, well, I don't know about you, there was a part of me that sort of liked him for a little bit, and then... Wait, he, second volume? Or not the uh, not second volume, but the the second year, their sophomore year. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So yeah, we we were introduced to him. He was kind of a brash, hotshot sort of a character, someone that you kind of enjoyed for his antics until it was revealed that he was a traitor. Traitor! <laughs> traitor! <laughs> And we 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 kind of had to watch his progression or de-evolution as he yeah fell out of favor with us I guess um, and here we are we we've culminated with it, it feels like the culmination of his story where now Saya has finally she's escaped and she's gotten her revenge on him and. I guess theoretically we should be done with him, but here, tell me this, Drew. Yeah, we've we've had a couple of reversals already within this series where people that we thought were dead turned out to not be dead. So, do you think there's any chance that Quan 
is alive or you think he dead dead? I'm pretty sure he's dead dead. It feels like this would be a it would be pretty unbelievable to understand how he could not be dead. You know, like if they came up with some way to bring him back to us, I would really scratch my head because <laughs> not only does he get stabbed fully through the chest by Saya's sword, but she kicks him Blade goes overboard. The upper part of his body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not even like through his stomach or something. It's it, the blade goes up. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's straight through his like his solar plexus. Yeah. Or his sternum. And then she she kicks him off the the ship and he goes into the ocean and we actually get some panels as we see his body float down into or not float uh sink down into the water. So, to me, that's an indication that he is dead. I can't really fathom how he would, how he could survive that. What if he was saved by some incredibly empathetic dolphins who nurse him back to health and teach him the ways of the dolphin? (sighs) (laughs) I think... That could be funny, but I'm not sure that this is a series that's trying to be funny like that. So (laughs) I think if they went for that joke, it would (laughs) throw my mind into conflict because then they're giving me some mixed messaging here. It would be like trying to mix up hijinks with serious stuff. I feel like it would give you like brain freeze or something like you would glitch out yeah i would find that pretty questionable storytelling choice i'm not saying that they can't come up with a way to show that he survived that but i feel like the way that it was depicted on the page seems to indicate that he's dead because he's sinking pretty far down into the water and there isn't any indication that anyone is near him or even is able to help him. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it'd be kind of a cop out to bring him back. I agree. I agree. I mean, you I did think... mention that we've seen some people come back from what we thought would be pretty fatal attacks or wounds in the past. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's possible but i feel like because we actually see his body go into the water i feel like that's communicating to us that he's dead dead like the other stuff i was thinking about was that one scene early on in the book might have been volume one or two when i think a goon who was working for uh, chico's family fell off the golden gate bridge after getting blown up or something and we we (laughs) thought he was dead but then he he showed up in another issue with like a sling around his arm <laughs> you remember what? that? He he hurt his arm. <laughs> What's the big deal? He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't walk out of it unscathed. <laughs> you make it seem like he was indestructible or something. <laughs> he had a sling on his arm. How much what more do you want from Rick Reminder? <laughs> so next time we see Quan, he might have like a band-aid on his uh yeah. <laughs> maybe he's wearing an eye patch or something to show that he's yeah, been yeah, through yeah. hell. <laughs> exactly. Um 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky thing to try to pull off in a series that is as as rooted in reality as you can possibly be while still being, you know, kind of peak human, right? Because uh, these aren't people with superpowers, but it's it's kind of that John Wick phenomena where they're still regular people that are capable of bleeding and dying, but just the most resilient version of people, movie people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like um, they're all 80s action heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you can only do that sort of fake out so many times before as a writer, Rick Remender just loses all credibility with you. So it's it's definitely a storytelling technique that you have to be sparing about, right? Yeah. Because if everybody starts coming back, if there is no permadeath in it, then at some point you're just going to be like, okay, now now you're just playing with the rules. Like, it's obvious when he's written himself into a corner and he doesn't know how to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, get out of it, except to just, you know, come up with miracles to save people. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm confident in saying that Quan is dead this time. But, hey, you know. Glad to see him die? Uh, I think, so there's a scene in the book where, or in this issue, where where what Saya does is she's she's telling Quan to go in there and get his sword and Quan is just kind of freaking out and he talks about he 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 says that I'm not a fighter, I'm not like you guys, I'm a sneak and that's all I can do is is sneak around to get the things that I want, right? That's that's my skill in life. That's how I'm able to survive, right? Mhm. And the thing about it is I think that's a pretty accurate summation of who Quan is and what Quan is, because as much as in the moment, as much as there are these moments here and there where he shows that there might be something of value in him, that's there might be some room for redemption in him. He, whenever presented with something that really puts him to the test it's pretty obvious that he always ends up resorting to saving his himself that's really his his priority and self-preservation self-preservation exactly so even when she's on the boat and he's gone through all this trouble to save her and he's got her on the boat and he's sending her home at the very end she's she's talking with him and he he's telling her that oh i'm 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 going to leave this place i'm going to go to vietnam i'm going to you know restart my life and he he tells Saya to tell the others if if she should run into them you know tell them that i'm sorry and then she wants to know what is he sorry for and even then he doesn't really tell her the whole truth he he just says oh they knocked me out and took me away and they were trying to get at marcus and the others right but I think Sayo was smart enough to know that he probably gave him up, gave them up. And, 
yeah, even in that instance where after everything he's done to like help her escape, there's there's one the the issue of what she's owed because of what he did to her, but there's also the issue of this guy probably isn't the kind of guy who's ever going to change. So like no matter how many chances you give him, yeah, he's he's just always going to be what he is. So I don't know. I don't think I was sad to see him go. He got what he deserved. I might be more neutral on that. I might just be. It, it's it's what happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's what happens know. to duplicitous people when they finally. Yeah. When the, the things that they keep on doing finally catch up and. They have to bear the consequences. I'm sure yeah. Saya was holding a grudge against him this whole time since he was the one who messed her up uh, when they were in San Francisco and got her captured. Or was that San Francisco? Uh, I forget. I think it was. was yeah. 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 They were yeah. hanging out uh, that I want to say that was like Halloween. Yeah, that was Halloween. They were hanging out on Halloween and yeah. things went crazy. And then he 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 betrayed him like a traitor. Yeah, that's what traitors do. <laughs> yeah, traitors betray. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there anything else about this issue that you noticed or anything that you felt was worth mentioning? I think in terms of plot, you pretty much summarized everything of note. It's primarily an action-oriented issue. Like, There's definitely a buildup in the beginning, with the in terms of the structure of the issue, there's a buildup with how we see the state of Quan as well as Saya, just the situations that they've been in um, since the last time we've seen them, and how Quan uh, gets this opportunity to to rebel against the people who have been treating him like this court mm-hmm. jester slash lackey kind of figure. No, 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 Drew. Um, mm-hmm. uh, his official term was sake bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Please get that right. Please get that right. <laughs> I think that's far more degrading than being a court jester. <laughs> I would I would gladly be called, I would t- gladly take on the title of court jester over sake bitch. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> It is pretty degrading. Uh, it is. It is. <laughs> and I feel like in the past, when we were talking about Quan, I think one of the things that we mentioned in a previous episode was how he's the kind of character who somehow kept on getting these extra chances where either he didn't get caught or if he did get caught by his friends for doing something questionable, they, you know, they. He can sort of charm his way out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's like he keeps having these opportunities or second chances, third chances to kind of do right by the people who are his friend group. But every time he ends up choosing a choice, he ends up making a choice that leaves us, the readers, disappointed in yeah. how yeah. he conducts himself or how he values his friends or the people that 
I guess he would consider his friends. So it's like all these chances that he kept on he kept on mess, messing up. Eventually, it's like, man, it's time to stop believing in Quan. <laughs> He's just yeah. kind of irredeemable. He's going to be who he is, and he's not yeah. going to change his duplicitous nature. He's just going to keep on looking out for number one, even if that means he has to sacrifice the people who trust him and think of him as a friend. And now he yeah. finally gets to a point where he realizes every decision he's made has brought him to the, this point. He's lost his fingers. He's been maimed in this way. So he decides he's got to... This is his last opportunity, his last good opportunity to really try and escape and even stick it back to Kenji and the Yakuza. So he sets Saya free. And like the way that whole thing plays out with him getting killed by Saya at the very end, there's some pretty heavy irony there. There's something about it where... It's poetic. Um, like the rest of the issue is just kind of this him sneaking around doing the, the thing that he usually does. And then an action scene where they get on a motorcycle and run away. And it's very exciting. The The artwork is extremely dynamic, as always, with just the judicious use of different types of panels and inventive layouts. So it's it just gets you gets your adrenaline pumping as you're reading it. And then they finally make it to safety on the boat. Everything kind of calms down for a bit. And they have this quiet moment, a conversation. And then Saya just ferociously stabs him right through the chest and tells him that she, she says, now we're even, and then throws him off the ship into the water. There's just so much irony there. It's like he finally made what I think we could agree is a good decision, something that helps somebody instead of him just himself, but it ends up costing him his life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that just goes to show that there are some things that can't be forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you describe him that way because the first thing that it made me think of was made me think of drug addicts in the sense that, you know, maybe Quan isn't addicted to anything, but it's their existence comes from this impulse of selfishness where you know in in this case it's his self-preservation but with drug addicts it's like that need for for a high to the point where you become a detriment to your friends and family around you Mm -hmm. and even when you go out there and try your when when drug addicts go out there and try their you know put on their best face to make it sound like things are better I'm, I'm i'm not saying that you know there aren't instances where people recover obviously but a lot of the times there are instances more or there are enough instances where um just in order to chase that high they're willing to sell almost anyone out in order to get what they want get what they need mm-hmm and it's you know it's never a good look it's it's the sort of thing that definitely burns bridges and i think it's fair to say that we can apply that to quan here in that he had to get to his lowest point where he in order to preserve his livelihood he sold out his friends and sided with 
these absolute sadists and it wasn't until they were cutting off his fingers and doing all that that he realized that he made the wrong choice which is not the best kind of person or the best kind of way to live right mm-hmm. like i if if i knew someone like that in real life who had to go to those links in order for them to realize that screwing me over was the wrong thing uh yeah i i i, I couldn't say that i'd feel too bad for them <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah here's a hypothetical question for you but when Quan says at the end that he's going to part ways with her and instead he's going to go back to Vietnam and try to start over again with a clean start. Did you believe him? Like, did you think, do you think he's capable of that? Do you think he would have actually lived a a brand new life apart from everything that's happened? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I can only put myself in his shoes. And I think for me, if I had been through what he had been through, I would definitely, you know, given the opportunity for escape, I would definitely restart my life and just stay in hiding. And hopefully the Yakuza would never (laughs) find me or never attempt to look for me. Like that would be my instinct. Yeah. But I don't know that Quan has that has any common sense quite quite frankly mm-hmm. yeah i don't know what do you think i think i don't have any faith in him whatsoever at this point so uh, he could have maybe he could have gone back to vietnam but i don't think he would have been an upstanding citizen some other trouble <laughs> exactly yeah okay 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 Okay. Did you have any thoughts on the motorcycle chase scene or any of the of the other action sequences? It just looked really high octane. Like there's just something about the way Wes Craig draws these vehicle chase scenes. We've had a few, quite a few in the series, and he's able to draw them in a way where you can track what's happening, but things still feel extremely <laughs> fast paced and frenetic. Yeah. And yeah, I think in a lot of uh, stories, especially in comics, it kind of feels like car chase scenes are often pretty difficult to do because it's not always easy to give the reader a good grasp of where everything is in relation to each other. Um, and sometimes if you do strive for that kind of clarity, then it loses some of the excitement because it just looks a little bit dry. And when things look kind of dry, the intensity of a chase scene doesn't look very intense. But the way that Wes Craig does it, maybe you don't know exactly where in the city they're driving through or riding their motorcycle through, but you get enough of an impression of traffic and place and speed that it does feel really exciting. So when they finally get to that, you know, that classic moment where they're driving up uh, a big ramp and, you know, they're hopping off, um, people are shooting at them, all that stuff is going on. It really does feel like a spectacular moment. So this is 
the kind of spectacle that just looks great on the page. It's not even that long of a sequence, and there isn't mm. a single use of a splash page. It's just a lot of sharp and clear storytelling that conveys everything you need to know about what's going on, conveys the mood and the uh, emotion of it all, communicates the speed. It's just well done. Yeah. I did want to pay special attention to the colors too. I really did enjoy the coloring that they did here because mm-hmm. what we're getting is the scene prior to it is them in a nightclub. So although it's dark, there's a lot of, you know, bright lights mixed in there. So it gives off that effect of what it's like being in a nightclub. Um, there's that blue tint from, you know, again, just if you've been to nightclubs, you've seen that they use a lot of filters. So, uh, you know, their ability to capture that is kind of cool. And then once the actual chase scene happens, it's just, it's just so eye-catching how attractive the colors are. Yeah. it, It uses a lot of pinks and, and grays. It's, it's fun. It really is fun. The, the first page of the chase scene on page 46 of the digital edition does some really interesting stuff with the panels where it, it kind of looks like uh, a fan or something like the shape of them is opening up when you see the faces of the people chasing them. I don't know. There's just something about the layout here that, mm-hmm. that grabbed mm-hmm. me. It feels like something that I don't think I've seen that ever. Yeah. Really. It's, yeah. it's unique. Yeah, the the paneling and the sequential storytelling throughout the entirety of this book, um, it, like Wes Craig does some really clever stuff that you don't see in most conventional comics. Certainly, I, it's not something I've seen in any of the big two. I also wanted to call attention to the fact that Quan has to dress up as a chick <laughs> in order to sneak in there to try to steal the blade. That was just a little bit of insult to injury in his final arc. <laughs> <laughs> just what a way to go. And then on top of that, um, he ends up blinding Kenji. And even though they make it a, a way like their entire situation with Kenji is far from over. Um, you know, Kenji's still very much alive and that he's, is going to be hanging over their heads. Pissed. Royally he's pissed. Royally pissed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Anything else or you want to talk about issue 38? Let's talk about issue 38. Issue 38. Marcus, Maria, Tosawe, Helmet, and Zenzel return to King's Dominion to shock and awe. After an interrogation by Master Lin, they have temporarily addressed all of his concerns, and he has chosen to reinstate them to the school, giving giving Maria and Marcus credit and retroactively making them legacy students, immediately putting them at odds with Shabnam and his clique. On their first day back, Marcus immediately notices his change in status, as he is now one of the most popular kids in the school. But as his star is on the rise, there is friction between Marcus and the three younger class, younger classmen as they choose to no longer associate themselves with him. 
As Marcus returns to a locker full of love letters, he is introduced to Jayla, a new student with an interest in him. As Marcus broods in the cemetery, he and Maria are approached by Shabnam and his crew. They are there to flex on Marcus, making it clear that they are the center of power at the school. But Marcus isn't intimidated as he has his own secrets on them as well. Albert. What's up? When you were in high school, did anybody ever try to flex on you to intimidate you? Uh, I think so. I think it's fair to say that all of high school is just one never-ending flex session where people are constantly trying to flex, especially if you're, well, no, I, I won't speak for young women in high school, but definitely as a young man when, you know, all of, all of our dumb teenage hormones are kicking in, we're all constantly at odds with one another, trying to make ourselves look cooler for girls or for status or whatever. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure people have flexed on me. Can you recall any specific moments that are particularly laughable in hindsight? Uh, I wouldn't say that they were laughable in hindsight, mostly because the kind of people that were flexing on me were pretty pathetic. So, <laughs> so even then, I, I had nothing but contempt for them. And, you know... If you're there just trying to score points off a dude to make him look, you know, not even to make him look bad, but to make yourself look better uh, in front of, you know, the classroom or, or girls or whatever. Uh, here's here's what I have, I'd have to say. If you're going to say something, it better be good. Otherwise, you're the one that looks stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely have had my fair share of dudes who, who came at me and... I was thoroughly unimpressed. Even then, I was thoroughly unimpressed by what they had to say. Like, I think if they had come at me and their burns were particularly good, I could take it with good humor. I could be like, okay, you know what? That was clever. I'll give you that. You know, I I, I even have to give some respect up to that. But if if your crap is weak, you you got to go home with your head head in shame, man. You got to do the walk of shame because. <laughs> You get no respect from me. <laughs> what kind of stuff did they say to you? I can't really remember at this point, but, you know, just generally whenever you're in class and you you have these interactions going on, someone's always going to say something stupid or, you know, try to try to get some points off you. But I, I again, I, I, I can't really recall at this moment, but I'm sure. If it was bad, I, I probably forgot it. Like, yeah. I know what happened, but I couldn't really recall a specific thing that anyone said. Uh, here's, here's I, I don't even remember what they said, but we both have a mutual person in our lives. Um, this guy named Ever, who, who used to go to high school with me. And he was, <laughs> wow, he was one of these guys. Him. <laughs> No one knows. I, I'm, I didn't say his last name. <laughs> I didn't provide where he lived. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, he was just a dude who, who was constantly doing stuff like that to me. And I don't think he was any cooler for it. If anything, uh, he was pretty soundly forgotten in high school, I'd say. 
you know mm-hmm. no one mm-hmm. ever no no one ever looked at him like he was one of the cool kids let, let me put it that way so i i had no problem taking crap from him because right ultimately he was just kind of meaningless yeah 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 you got anything uh i feel like the one thing that really stands out in my high school memories is this one time i was in i think it was physics class or it might have been some kind of science class i'm pretty sure it was physics but uh it was a class where i was i think i was a junior in high school and there were some seniors in my class as well and there was this one day when the teacher uh turned off the lights for some reason i I don't even remember what kind of experiment or phenomenon he was trying to show us but uh, we had these pens that could glow in the dark uh, to help us write while we were observing whatever it was we were observing and then at one point uh, near the end of of the experiment the one of the senior guys took a couple of the pens and he started like moving them around like he was at a rave or something mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I made a, a wisecrack I really don't remember what I said uh, it wasn't anything specifically demeaning towards him I really can't remember what I said, but it made the whole class laugh, and I guess he took it the wrong way. So immediately that day, uh, as we got out of class, I, I imagine he must have like paged a bunch of his friends, you know, back in the days when everybody had pagers. But yeah, yeah. as soon as uh, I walked out of class, he and about eight or ten other kids uh, surrounded me, and he started like going off on this whole spiel about being disrespected. He started, you know, cussing at me. He he threw some some of those punches that they're not like they didn't connect, but it's like when you're trying to intimidate someone tr- and make them flinch because they yeah, think they're about yeah. to get hit. He 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 threw a couple of those at me, started cussing at me, acting tough, pushed me a little bit into a locker, and I had one friend in my class who was standing right next to me as all of this was happening. So he was kind of like surrounded by these guys too. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, this this guy, uh, his name was Colin, and he was he was a big sack of crap. But I remember yeah. he he definitely was one of those kids who thought he was super cool. Uh, I guess he had I don't know if they were his friends or if he was just a guy who had a bunch of contacts. But I guess you could say by high school standards he was one of the popular kids, and he really wanted to you know intimidate me and make me scared. But I think he just kind of like pissed me off and annoyed me (laughs) right right and definitely you know all these years later i think pretty lowly of him as a person clearly (laughs) yeah from what i remember he ended up uh joining a pyramid scheme after high school when he was in college oh now i have to ask (laughs) but (laughs) usually i've I've heard a bunch of stories of people who join pyramid schemes and they end up um you know, because of the nature of pyramid schemes, you gotta keep uh, getting people to join, right? Yeah. So there, there are a bunch of stories online about people who hear back from their bullies in high school or people that were just generally mean to them in high school, all of a sudden coming out of the blue and them hitting them up and you know them going and trying to pitch them their their pyramid schemes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I gotta ask, did 
did he ever contact you to try to get you to buy in? <laughs> uh, he personally did not contact me, but one of the okay. other people in the pyram- in that same pyramid scheme who was his friend did contact me and, and organize a meeting with me. And that's a whole nother story. I don't know if <laughs> you want another tangent, but yeah, that guy definitely uh, had a meeting with me. And during the meeting, I, I think he kept talking up how cool Colin was because Colin had made all this money and he was driving this kind of car. Or I don't remember what it was, but he was, you know, trying now to impress me. Checking. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, remember Colin from from high school? He's he's making this much money and now he's driving this car. Um, you know, he's just trying to like make it sound cool and make it make it feel like, oh, I want to be like Colin, you know. But in my mind, I was like, That's so lame. dude, I hate that guy. <laughs> I would rather <laughs> yeah. be poor. I would rather be That's poor so than lame. anything like him. Exactly. Exactly. At least I got my self-dignity, man. Yeah. That's not a cool thing. That's just stupid. Yeah. If you joined a pyramid scheme, that's more telling of your level of intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But anyway, going back yeah. to Deadly Class <laughs> number 38. <laughs> There was something about this issue that I don't know about you, but I kind of found it a little bit disorienting because the opening scene here, we're back in school. I don't know exactly how much time has passed since the previous story arc, but Victor and Brandy and everybody, they're back in the classroom and Brandy, she just looks like she's fine. But then the last volume when we saw her, she was pretty grievously wounded. Or it looked like she had some pretty heavy wounds, you know? But now she just looks mm-hmm. back to normal. So that's like a really quick time to heal from everything. So I, I think, think a good amount of time has passed. Like, I, I, like I couldn't give you a, a, a set date and time, but I, I imagine that a reasonable amount of time has passed because they've they've essentially just come back from spending x amount of time in the wilderness right yeah so what what's it take to heal from a severe stab wound to the gut like a week it's probably like a week right and then to just start walking around (laughs) and being all athletic like normal uh yeah i'm sure she's fine (laughs) She uh she took a Gatorade and she walked it off. She's good. <laughs> <laughs> she drank a healing potion. Yeah. Now she's yeah. fully restored. She's got all her hearts back. Or it's like Skyrim. She she ate some potatoes and now she's fine. <laughs> yeah. She must have had to eat like a hundred potatoes, three hundred heads of cabbage, a couple of wheels of cheese, some bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some rolls. There we go. That's what they are. Rolls. <laughs> Some sweet rolls. Yeah. <laughs> See, kids, don't say that comics never taught you anything. If you're mortally injured or wounded, just eat some Hawaiian rolls and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you learn from playing video games, at least. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I, yeah, I, I found that a little bit disorienting the fact that she's just back at full health after all the wounds from the previous story and then the situation kind of seems on the surface apparently the same as before 
Yeah, Victor back with Shabnam's group. Even though at the end of the previous volume, it seemed like he might have had a change of heart after what happened um, between him and Marcus. Mm-hmm. But we don't really get any indication of what's really going through his mind, through Victor's mind here. But uh, like you were saying at the beginning of this recording, you mentioned how this volume kind of feels like it's establishing a new status quo. And yeah, I definitely agree with that because this issue specifically, I think, is the one that makes it feel like there's a new status quo in the building. I mean, Marcus and Maria are back in school and everybody's reacting to them. Everybody, even the younger kids, seem to know the reputation that these two have. Um, and yeah, we have this new situation at school with Marcus and Maria back. It's making everything feel more volatile and you're just kind of waiting for the dam to burst because Shabnam and Troll and their group, they're still, they've still got this tenuous grip on power, but they can kind of see it slipping from their grasp in a way. Mm. At least that's the impression that I think Shabnam has because of the fractures within his cabal. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels like a new status quo, but after all of the things that have been happening throughout the entire comic book series, it's hard for me to say whether this is something that will last until the end of the series, or if this is just kind of a, a change for for now. But at least in the moment, we do see Marcus and Maria settling back into the school, getting back into the groove of King's Dominion, even though they kind of have their own agenda hidden in their hearts. They're still playing along with Master Lin just to be able to get into his good graces enough to re-enroll in the school. Absolutely. I'd happen to agree that the the story is pretty rushed along and expedited but i think initially it might have been a little jarring to me as well but seeing as how it really just feels like they are just re resetting everything so that we can watch them watch it all play out uh, i think with that in mind i was i was willing to accept it right because mm-hmm. what you have is Maria and Marcus go back to school and the explanation for what happens to them is that I guess realistically speaking, Master Lin and all of King's Dominion should want them dead, right? But they work that into the story with Master Lin going essentially covering all his bases and saying, Okay, well, you have an explanation for all these people that died. You've come up with some sort of alibi. Okay, fine. So seeing as how you survived the test and you were out in the world, um, you know, you get points for that. And as a result, we will retroactively make you legacy students because, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't the kind of school where tests and scores apply, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about your survival and you've shown that you can survive. And then on top of, so there's this new dynamic that's being added to the mix, which is not, uh, which is, you know, Shabnam and his group were, the center of power at the school but now all of a sudden they're watching out for marcus and maria okay on top of that um marcus and maria show up and 
almost immediately all the kids are just in awe of these two and so it's not just about the academic status uh that they hold it's also their social status because now everybody in the school is about these kids this two these two kids who showed that you can you know break the rules and still succeed Mm -hmm. so so there's a lot of new status quos being established here and and on top of that we also even have um their tiny little unit falling apart because um maria and marcus came they come back with uh shabnam zinzel i mean not shabnam they come back with zinzel they come back with tashawe they come back with helmet and really quickly they establish that there's some sort of rift going on between them and they are not in a position to communicate with each other although we don't know exactly what's going on they they don't never really tell us straight uh they they don't ever directly tell us what exactly happened but something happened between them um yeah so we we've got all these different dynamics going on and they they even introduce this one new student jayla into the mix and two students he's he's got a new roommate to this australian kid Mm -hmm. um yeah so it's it's just it really feels like this is the start of their junior year because i think at least if my calculations are correct based on what they were saying they are in their junior year now because um they missed all of their sophomore year so yeah well they're um, still in 1988 right i believe so because the the next issue starts in december of 1988 okay so when did they start at the school shoot i'd have to i'd have to check okay because i wasn't sure if this was actually their junior or their sophomore year i was under the impression that it would be their sophomore year because helmet and that class are the freshmen right unless yes. they're sophomores now yeah but yeah that's the thing i'm not sure about either because i i was under the impression that enough time has passed where everyone's up a grade now because there's this scene where master lynn is talking with them let me see if i can find it um well it it might he might just have meant that he was retroactive really reinstating them as legacies but uh yeah that was what i assumed because i think it's still a matter of Marcus and Maria being sophomores while Helmut and his group are freshmen. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was kind of taken aback by the opening of this issue, because it doesn't really feel like that much time has passed. We're still sometime in the fall of 1988. And uh, Brandy's injuries, you know, she's all better now. It's like... Wait a minute, what's going on? Like, how much time has passed? That's why I was kind of disoriented by it. Isn't, but isn't December of 88 kind of around the start of the new school year? Yes, school would probably start in August or September, typically. Yeah. So they're a few months into this school year. So they're, I think Marcus and Maria are technically a few months into sophomore year. 
for the sake of argument, I'll I'll, I'll say sure. So I want to hear yeah. your reasoning. What what makes you believe that they are juniors? Because think, aren't Helmut and them the freshman class still? They're the freshman class, but I feel like enough time has passed since the last volume that you could possibly say that they're like I don't have like it all laid out before me where I can point to specific things, but the freshman year for those guys was, you know, quite a few volumes already, right? Yeah. Like, we've had quite a few things happen in that span of time. Yeah. We? Yeah. But so, it's not like the amount of time is on a scale with any sense that we can, like, measure with the passage of issues. Because uh, I think volume one is 1987. Mm. Okay. So these events are pretty compressed. They are. They are. I don't know. It. I'm just saying that that's just what made sense to me. Yeah, it would. It would make more sense if that much time had passed. But I don't actually think that's what the story says has passed because. I've, I I just went back and and checked. Yeah, the story volume one is 1987. Okay. Yeah. Well. So okay. Marcus and Maria are sophomores. Sophomores. Okay. Yeah. Right. So Brandy probably did heal from those wounds in a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Things move we'll fast in this world. We'll we'll go with that. They are sophomores. Until I hear otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the point of all that? <laughs> I think we were just kind of trying to establish the timeline on everything that's been going on. Because I was saying how that's the thing that kind of leaves me feeling a little bit disoriented. Because things feel so kind of jumbled together where all of these events seem to be... It, it does feel like everything that happens needs a lot of time to take place. Like it, it feels like we've read so much, so many adventures that if it, it feels like a good amount of time has passed, but in terms of how much actual time has passed within the story, it's probably not that much because school started for them. I'm guessing in August or September of 1988. And we're probably just now around I don't know, like November or something. November or early December, because the next issue, thirty issue thirty nine, takes place in December of nineteen eighty eight. Mm. Okay. Yeah, uh, like I, I happen to agree, it's pretty disorienting. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going on. Uh, yeah. I feel like I've uh, added to the disorientation by making you confront actual dates and times. Well, it was probably a lot easier for me when I was just going with it according to what I was thinking, because it just would allow me to make sense of everything that was going on. But sure, whatever. (laughs) 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 
All right. <laughs> Did you have any other thoughts? No, I don't think I have any other thoughts on this issue. Did you? I, I felt like I might have had something, but I've just been so thoroughly We spent detracted. so much time <laughs> befuddled by the the timeline and the order of events and how everything relates to the previous story that it I feel like that's been the heavy thing on our minds the, the past couple of minutes well yeah exactly so it sort of derailed any any other thought <laughs> uh, well what did you think of Shabnam's appearance in this volume because we hadn't seen him uh in the past couple issues and then now we finally see him in the aftermath of the attack from the previous volume and we see that his face is scarred and he's more ornery than ever it seems like he's he's uh being a lot bolder about making public threats and talking back Mm -hmm. to his instructors but on some level i feel like we start to see him unravel a bit there's just something I think earlier on when he first came into his power, he was a character who came across as more threatening because he wasn't really prone to outbursts of anger. And he just seemed like he was more of a schemer, yeah. someone who was constantly thinking and conniving and using his cunning to do his stuff. But now he gets angry easily. He's yelling at people. Uh, and this change is kind of reflected in the scarring on his face from the attack from the previous volume. So it's an interesting shift in how we perceive him, I think. He's this yeah. character who's kind of gone from being uh, a kingpin type character, a Wilson Fisk type villain and now he's more of a unhinged villain a loony madman yeah (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i guess it makes sense that his evolution he would sort of take this track in his evolution where as he becomes mentally more deranged it makes sense that his physical appearance would become just as degraded, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a fair chance that by the end of all this, he, he's, there's a chance he might just be, you know, a cackling madman in a wheelchair or something. <laughs> <laughs> or a guy with a hook and like laser <laughs> eyes. I don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's also an interesting dynamic to have it played out uh, the way that it did in the end where Shabnam comes to him, you know, he's got his people with him and he's essentially threatening him. We've seen in the past that Shabnam has made it clear that his power comes from information gathering from the secrets that he has, right? And that's, that's kind of where the source of his strength comes from. And when he confronts marcus with this marcus just kind of throws that all back at him lets him know he he lets him he makes it clear that 
he is not without his own secrets on Shabnam. So, you know, we, we kind of have this weird hybrid cold and hot war going on between these two, these two kids, teens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it feels like another example of one bully trying to flex on someone he perceives as weaker, but doesn't really have any impact on the person he's flexing on. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it just kind of makes Shabnam seem even more disreputable and even more pathetic. Yeah. Just making these empty threats, just making, uh, using words to try and intimidate these people who aren't really impressed by anything he has to say. Just seems desperate. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I just remembered that I was going to bring up was the idea of Victor. Um, You know, when we last saw him, he was kind of on a redemption arc where he had just saved Marcus's life. And now he's back to where he's, he's at, right? Where he is clearly sided with Shabnam and he's part of that group even shows up with Shabnam and all of them when they're, you know, trying to intimidate Marcus and Maria. But I think, I think the, that I reckon the way that I reconciled it was that there is definitely something different about him too, where Mm -hmm. he's not actively vocal, but something is going on beneath the surface with him. He's far more subdued in his appearances here. Yeah, exactly. It's not that he doesn't say anything, but he says a lot less than we've been accustomed to expecting. Exactly, exactly. And up to this point, you know, up to the previous volume, we kind of saw him as, well, we definitely saw him as an aggressor. We saw him as someone who is hostile towards Marcus. And here, even though he's pitted against Marcus by his natural allegiance or alignment or whatever. Um, there, yeah, there's this, this hesitancy to lean into his, I guess, verbose over the top villain roots to, you know, to, to make all these threats at, at, at Marcus, the way that Shabnam's doing by not doing that, I think that's indicative of more it's more indicative of something going on there that I think it'll be interesting to see when Rick Remender really taps into that. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. You wanna move on to issue thirty nine? Yeah, I'm ready for it. In the Castro, two homophobes attack attempt to attack a couple when Stefan appears, beating them both severely to the point of excess. The couple the couple implore him to stop, pointing out that he clearly has issues to work out, but until then, he shouldn't be claiming to do what he's doing for their sake. This strikes a nerve, causing Stefan to ride off in tears. As Shabnam plots against Marcus, Brandy Lynn approaches him and makes him a proposition as she positions herself to move up within their hierarchy. 
As the others within the group arrive, she manipulates him and his wiener, guiding him to <laughs> arrive to the conclusion that Stefan and Brandy Lynn will be the ones <laughs> will be the ones taking lead on the assassination of Marcus. In the lunchroom, Marcus and Maria get into a fight about Christmas festivities, causing Maria to leave with Zenzel. As Marcus sits alone, Stefan approaches him, setting him up for Brandy Lynn. But when Marcus asks him what he's doing with Shabnam and whether it was all worth it, Stefan loses it and intervenes on Marcus's behalf as Brandy Lynn goes in for the killing blow. With shots fired, Marcus calls Shabnam out in front of the whole school. Brandy Lynn and Stefan are taken away by the school's authorities. Jayla comes to Marcus after after all the commotion and invites him to get together, in, invites him to a get together, which he accepts. Meanwhile, Helmet has grown increasingly somber when Tasawi asks what he has planned. Although there are allusions to another plan going on, Helmet only has one objective, to shut down Petra's father's cult. Tasawi wants to help him, but Helmet isn't convinced of Tasawi's commitment. As Marcus parties, Jayla leads him into, the, into another room, and as she's about to attack, Marcus pulls a gun on her, revealing that he knows that she's Willie's sister, who, who's, who's out for revenge, but he has other plans, and she's welcome to participate. As Maria and Zenzel walk together, there is something ominous going on. Zenzel has been in communication with a mysterious figure and is playing some sort of angle. It isn't until they arrive at a church in the mission that she drops the facade. Within the church is Saya. Maria rushes over to embrace her friend. Yeah, this was an issue that I think I jotted down the most notes out of all the issues in this volume. But I enjoyed it, man. Uh, it's got a lot of uh scenes set in san francisco mm -hmm. there's the opening scene that takes place in the castro uh i believe that's a a real intersection a real bar at that intersection there the moby dick yeah i've seen it a bunch of times yeah okay yeah i wasn't just uh wishing against yeah. hope that that's a real that's based on a real location you didn't imagine it it's a real bar <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and i feel like every time i drive by it i make the same joke because it's like you know the castro is the castro and there's a part of me that always giggles whenever i see a place called moby dick so yeah <laughs> it's you know it's just the immature part of my brain that goes oh get it moby dick he 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 <laughs> is that how you laugh in your mind when you laugh at something yeah when i think about um a, a bar called moby dick or when i think about the word titmouse <laughs> okay you kind of you channeling your inner michael jackson there yeah <laughs> i was i was going for a bashful child giggling at you know saying something that's not a cuss but sounds close enough to a cuss that they they feel like they can get away with it mm. Mm -hmm. you know <laughs> well some have said that michael jackson himself was kind of an eternal child uh a lot of people have said a lot of things about him and true true i don't know what's what but sure 
<laughs> the other place I wanted to talk about was the church and the mission. At first, mission Dolores. It, yeah, exactly. At first, when I saw it, I thought it was um, that one church up on Knob Hill. But after seeing Mission, I was like, oh, okay, okay. I think I know that church. It's like right by Balboa High School, I think. Uh, it's probably close to it. I I don't remember exactly like where they are in relation to each other. But yeah, I, I think you can probably walk from one to the other in a relatively short time. Right. Or it might but, even be close to like Dolores Park. Yeah. Know. It's yeah. I just know approximately where it is. Like I I couldn't tell you what street it's on or anything, but mm-hmm. I've definitely like walked past there when I've when I've walked in that area, I've driven past it a bunch of times. It's a pretty famous building. I, I think when I was yeah. a kid we went there for a school field trip because um Mission Dolores is like the oldest building in San Francisco, I think. That's I'm pretty sure. Right. I'm pretty sure it's the oldest building and like one of the one of the earliest or longest surviving Catholic churches um maybe maybe in the state, but mm. definitely in, in San Francisco. It's a yeah. really old building. Yeah, yeah. And it looks more or less the way that they drew it. So Yeah, it's recognizable. You know, if you know anything about this podcast, you know that it we enjoy it when we see things that are accurately rendered as they pertain to our hometown. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What did you think about the scene when Zenzel and Maria are, leave King's Dominion and we see them walking through Chinatown? We see them going through the Stockton Tunnel and then they end up in the mission. Like that's a pretty long walk. Like it'd probably take like an hour to to do all that. I'm not even sure exactly where King's Dominion is, but I guess they have to walk through Chinatown to get to the mission. So it's somewhere huh. up in that part of the city. Huh. Actually, when you said that was Stockton Tunnel, I didn't realize that it was Stockton Tunnel until you mentioned it. I had to like go back and look at it, but I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. That is Stockton Tunnel now that yeah. I see it. That is yeah. kind of nice. I, I assumed yeah. it was just because... The previous panels, it's they were walking through up. Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how accurate it is to anything in my memory, but I'd have to say that aside from uh, the Stockton Tunnel, everything else could just be a generic Chinatown to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't line up with anything that actually exists in my mind. But, you know, I still appreciate it nonetheless. Like, and Rick Remender is, has spent time here, so he definitely has credibility with me. Yeah. You know, in terms yeah. of, um, like, I, I find his renderings of San Francisco, him and Wes Craig's rendering of San Francisco, far more acceptable than a lot of movies that, oh you know, yeah, just do, you like know, the ones that you, are, like, uh, obviously filmed in Toronto or something. <laughs> Exactly. A generic cityscape and then the Golden Gate Bridge is in the background and it's like, see? San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed that scene. It's a pretty long walk, but I, I guess the two of them have a lot of time to kill as they go through Chinatown to get to the mission. But... Mm. uh. The other thing that 
I had to comment on, especially since you made me laugh during your summary was when you were talking about Brandy and Shabnam. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, okay, if you're gonna, if you're going to reduce this story to you know game of thrones in a assassin high school or something then it kind of makes sense that these kids would they're 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 removing all the stops and doing whatever they can to shore up power for themselves right Mm -hmm. so she goes over here brandy lynn goes over here and the interesting thing is her they've alluded to the fact that her voice has been messed up ever since Petra. So when she talks, I, I imagine she sounds like she has she smokes like a carton of cigarettes a day at this point. <laughs> I imagine that's just how she sounds. And they draw her voice, uh, her word balloons that way, where you can see that it's kind of scraggly, right? Good old Russ Wooten. Mm-hmm. Wooton! Ain't no clon like the Wooton clon. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, she goes over there and she, you know, gets pretty close to him. And, you know, you just see her hand move from his face <laughs> and it just disappears below the equator. And then all the other kids walk in and you just see Shabnam just kind of blushing and acting really weird. And there's this one panel on page 83. Yep. Uh, the question mark. Is it a question mark? You're talking. No, oh, no, looking, no, no. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I was, looking at I was that gonna, panel where Stefan is looking at them. No, no, no. I was talking about the, the, the thing that makes me chuckle is all the way in the furthest right corner of it, you see Shabnam and you see Brandy Lynn sitting next to him. And Shabnam's like all flustered, right? Yeah. And the thing that makes me giggle is if you look at Brandy Lynn's shoulder, you get the little like motion lines. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's a pianist and she didn't even know it. (laughs) She's manipulating Uh, him. Yeah, exactly. She she's uh, she plays an organ. (laughs) That is she is. Then the the fourth panel on the page, the same page. Stefan is looking at them and he's just got this question mark above his head. Yeah. <laughs> and then what's their deal? Yeah, it's like it's it's a pretty funny panel. And Shabnam's yeah. facial expression, he just looks like a, a doofus. Yeah, yeah. But up to this point, she's Brandy Lynn is talking to him and she's basically pouring poison into his ears, letting him know that Grogda doesn't respect him. And, you know, all she does is talk mad crap about him when he's not around. And it's not a far leap from the reality of it to see, to imagine her doing that. Because she really doesn't have any respect for Shabnam Mm -hmm. at all in the slightest. Exactly. So it's easy pickings for, for Brandy Lynn to come in there show him a little bit of affection you know give him some attention and then to try to usurp uh grogda's position from from that Mm -hmm. um and and it just indicates that there's more fishers and uh more 
uh yeah more fissures within their uh little group than we realize their cabal than we realize right there's there's definitely a lot of room for things to go wrong here Mm -hmm. it's it's you know it's it's good foreshadowing uh i look forward to seeing how that's all going to play out and speaking of which that entire scene in the beginning is is also a nice bit of i guess backstory or lore that we're adding to uh stefan right because at this point we've got this really huge cast there are so many characters to 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 work with everyone's got a little bit of story and it's really about progressing each character a little bit at a time so that it that it feels even and the last thing that we saw about stefan was that you know when they were purging the rats from the school stefan was in a relationship with another boy he had these letters and shabnam used those letters against him and forced him to kill uh this other boy i forget the 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 guy's name but stefan ends up killing him in order to preserve himself and join their group right Mm -hmm. and we know that stefan has harbored a grudge against shabnam this whole time but he continues to be a part of this uh cabal because it offers him power but nonetheless there is definitely some part of him that is embittered towards shabnam and when when we open this scene where um you know these two homophobes attack this these two two men making out shabnam i mean stefan shows up and he just beats the ever-loving crap out of them and i thought that was a pretty intense scene where these guys are talking to him and they're saying look you've got you've clearly got your own issues but to say that you're doing this for us like don't do that you know Mm because this isn't about us this is about you and then he he has this flashback where he thinks about his relationship and what he did to this guy and he just runs off and you know that's something that's been simmering with him the whole time. So to present this scene, to open it, open this issue with this particular scene just shows that Stefan is at a boiling point. He's been sitting on this the whole time for as long as he has, and it's about to explode. Yeah. And it makes sense in the structure of this issue, issue 39 specifically, because later on, he's the one who ends up making that decision to protect Marcus from getting stabbed in the back when Brandy Lynn mm-hmm. is charging at him. It's like the the seed for that moment in the cafeteria was planted in that opening scene for us. Because without that opening scene in the Castro, there would be no real reason for Steph, for Stefan to... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how mm-hmm. we're calling him Stefan. Because... <laughs> Steph Curry. <laughs> but there'd be no reason well, for Steph Stefan in the cafeteria to do what he did if we didn't have that scene in the Castro. That's the thing that sets him up for this other moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you're you're right. There is a lot of stuff that does happen in this issue. Definitely a lot of things worth taking note of. Um yeah, aside from that. We also have this whole uh, 
this whole story plot where Jayla, who's been following Marcus around this whole time, she's been observing him. She finally asks him to go out. And this all happens pretty quick, too. Like, I feel like if this was a different series, they would have dragged this out a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, her her place in this whole thing. But it's been, what, maybe one issue since Jayla has been introduced. Mm -hmm. And she ends up inviting Marcus out to this party. And then while they're all hanging out and playing games, she invites him into the other room and she pulls a gun out on him. But before she can do what she had come to do, Marcus pulls a gun on her and he basically says, I know everything. I know who you are. I know what you're here for. You're Willie's sister. And I just want you to know I loved him like a brother. He was like a brother to me. And there's no way that I would have done this to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, he basically says that he's got something in the works. And if she wants to get revenge on someone, then this is her chance to do it. What did you think of that choice? Like, I mean, do you feel like I was saying, I feel like if this had been a different series, they would have drawn out this reveal a little longer, right? Well, let me ask you, because I'm not sure if I might have missed uh, any hints or foreshadowing, but did we know that Willie had a sister? I do not remember anything indicating that he had a sister. It's kind of soap opera-y. I, I will give it that. Yeah, I think that's the thing that kind of surprised me, because I, if there was a hint in an earlier volume, I definitely did not catch it. I don't Drew, remember Drew, it. Drew, Drew, Drew. Huh? Drew. Was there anything indicating that he didn't have a sister? <laughs> <laughs> you got me, dude. You got me. <laughs> the glove don't Score. Work, you must have quit. <laughs> Score. Your honor. I rest my case. <laughs> Dang. Ace attorney showing me what's up. Objection. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing. I don't think we've had real indications that he had a sister or if we did, they were just so subtle and long ago that I don't know. But then the other thing that kind of adds to the surprise as I read this issue is that Marcus already knows who she is. So I guess at some point maybe Willie told him about her or somehow marcus might have done some research on his friend and like figured it yeah. out I, I don't really know how he knows all this stuff and I, i'm not sure if it's something that warrants any kind of explanation for us in a flashback or anything in, in a future issue but it is something that kind of took me by surprise in a way where i was scratching my head kind of wondering if i missed something mm-hmm mm -hmm. I, I presume yeah, you don't that remember they it, I'm are not sure. going. I presume that they are going to have some sort of explanation for it because mm -hmm. it is pretty out of left. Like it's already kind of out there and soap opera e that she that Willie would have this sister, but then to add that extra layer on top of it where Marcus knows who she is and is like one step ahead of her, like that's. That's the sort of thing that I feel like you have to address at some point. You can't just... That's Scott Snyder stuff, if you just leave that alone, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm, I... At this point, 
I'm invested enough and I have enough faith in Rick Remender that I'm willing to to ignore the randomness of it to see how this is all going to play out. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely way too invested in the story to throw my hands up in the air and want to walk away from this. I, I definitely got to see this? how this plays out. <laughs> what is this? Does Rick Remender think we are? What does he think we are? That we're stupid? Does he think that we're idiots? What? Am I supposed to believe that everyone has a sister? <laughs> well, did he say that everyone doesn't have a sister? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to write this on my blog. <laughs> um, There's another you... plot element yeah. that uh we see a little bit of here and it's kind of just basically one page uh, the one page conversation between helmut and tasawi in the aftermath of the scene at the cafeteria helmut and tasawi are talking a bit and then tasawi sees helmut's got a duffel bag with his axe in it and he's wondering what's going on and we learn that helmut is planning to shut down petra's father's cult to avenge her mom because that was something that he and Petra had promised to do together when she was alive. But now Helmut uh, is planning to do it by himself. And Tasawi basically says, I'm going to ride with you. You know, we're going to do it together. So it's all we really get of this scene. So I kind of wonder if this is going to be related to the main story that's going on with Marcus and Shabnam and uh, those other kids. Like, how is this whole cult thing, this mission that Helmut and Tasawi are going to go on, how is this going to relate to everything else that's going on? Or is this just going to be like their story and then they'll come back after it's done and link up with the rest of the kids? That's what I'm curious about. I don't really... Yeah. see the connection yet yeah yeah i mean again i i i think rick remender is one of those guys that likes to have a lot of plot lines up there in the air and eventually he's going to find some way to have everything come together or resolve it in a way that makes sense right like mm-hmm. it it has to um i did like this scene though because tosawe is another character that's come a long way where he initially comes off as this guy who feels like he's a dude who wants friends, but just has this really rough exterior. And it feels like he just kind of traded places with Quan in that sense, right? Where Quan was the likable one and ultimately became the the rat fink, whereas Tasawe was kind of the unlikable one. And here what we see is him becoming someone that can be reliable, a good friend, if anything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read this scene to you after uh, Helmet talks about his plan. And so Stowey's just talking with him and he goes, if you're doing some crazy shit, why didn't you ask for help? And Helmet says, we're friends, Toss, but not come and maybe die with me, friends. And the f- very final scene in that uh in that on that page it's just the two of them sitting there and there's a lot of negative space 
but Tasawi just looks at him and he goes, maybe if I come with you, we will be. Yeah. Like, that's a really, like, noble thing for him to say, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he has an out here. Helmet, Helmet is giving him an out and says, you know, I don't know if we're really friends the way that you think we're friends because I'm about to go do something that could get me killed. And he still commits to it. Tasawe still commits to it. Yeah, it's great. Totally. It's a great page. Yeah, that that really is a, a great scene. It's a scene that it's not the kind of scene I would say is like tugs your heartstrings or anything, but it's like a good scene with emotional impact, you know, because it's it's the whole male friendship thing and, and like how he doesn't have to say I love you, man. I would, I would die for you or anything, but like just the way that the scene plays out, it's, it's, it's cool, man. It's, it's kind of macho. Yeah. It's kind of got uh, an undercurrent of bravado to it, but like the sentiment works in this scene between these two yeah. specific characters. And I like that, man. Anytime you can write a good scene about two guys being friends, like that's, that's some good stuff, man. It's, I feel like it's a pretty under, or overlooked um, aspect in a lot of fiction writing in general, where mm, mm. people kind of can take uh, that sort of relationship between characters for granted. So just to dedicate one page to these characters getting closer, I like it. It's not done in yeah. a corny way or anything. It, it's just it's not like 300 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not more dramatic. I mean, the movie three hundred. Yeah, it's not more dramatic than it needs to be. It's just the proper amount, and it it's it's cool, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. I look at that scene, and I think to myself, Tasawe would totally give Helmut a colonoscopy. That's how close they are. Yeah, and I think Helmut would go prone <laughs> for that. <laughs> Offer himself up. Yeah. That's how much trust exists there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those two guys could totally do a podcast together. Yeah, they would colonoscopize one another. They could call their podcast Between the Butt Crack. <laughs> <laughs> Which, incidentally, is what I refer to as a gutter. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, for everybody listening, we're just kidding around. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm still gathering myself. <laughs> oh man. There's also another thing about that page. Um we get this revelation. Well, I guess in this issue overall, we get this revelation that and it does make sense that Marcus does have some sort of plan going on. There is a bigger game shell game being played here. And even though there's this big scene that they made of, you know, the freshman kids not wanting to be, not wanting to associate themselves with Marcus, something is happening there. They're, the pieces are being moved into place. So that's pretty intriguing. I, I have no idea how that's going to play out. And I have no idea what Helmut's plans with uh, Petra's dad, how those are going to affect this overall plan. 
but yeah, there's a there's a lot of balls in the air. Yeah, Marcus's plans right now we're not really entirely privy to them. All we kind of know is that he has some kind of plan, but it's like that scene uh, when he's at the party in Oakland and he he's playing dominoes and winning. You know, he's he knows what to to do. It's like I think that's kind of symbolic of where he's at in the story right now. He's just making these plans and and getting everything measured and and playing the game but he's got a plan and and he's capable of success so it feels like he is on the upswing right here while shabnam is going downwards i will say i'm looking at that scene that you were describing right and we see him at this party in oakland and there's this one scene where he's drinking and he's just playing dominoes and you see all these squiggles around his head. And in that moment, he sort of looks like the old Marcus, the one who used to just really throw himself into drugs and alcohol. I mean, not yeah. that he doesn't still do that, but like really loses himself in it, right? Mm-hmm. So when uh, when he gets taken into the back room by Jayla, like... He sobers up sense, quick. There's Yeah, there's there's a sense that there's a threat going on. And if he's the way that he was, that he'd be in some real trouble, right? Um, the way that they uh, show this scene is Jayla asks him to go into the back room and then you turn to the next page and it's page 97. And he goes into the back room and then all the other people at the party just look into that room. It's pretty menacing, mm-hmm. you know? But then you're right. The second that she tries to pull whatever she's going to pull, he sobers up and it just goes to show that this is not the same Marcus. He is on top of it. He is good to go. He he knows what he wants to do. He's got something up up his sleeve. He's ready. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good scene in setting him up for what comes next. Yep. Did you have any thoughts on the final revelation of the issue where Zenzel and Maria are walking and then they come in to the mission? Dolores Church, and we see Saya right there. That one was interesting too because Zenzel is kind of apart from the other two freshmen right now, and I I don't really know uh, what kind of information she's communicated with Helmut and Tasawi about anything that's going on here, but apparently. She and Saya maintained contact. So when Saya came back to San Francisco after escaping from her brother, I, I guess the two of them were able to set up this meeting with Maria. And it is a pretty fun scene because mm-hmm. you see Saya standing pretty menacingly, holding her unsheathed katana in the aisle between the pews within the church. And Maria looks at her and her expression is just kind of one of shock. (laughs) Yeah. And they both look intense. Then Maria pulls out her fan blade thing that whatever that weapon is called. And then they, she charges at Saya and then they just end up hugging each other at the end. (laughs) Can I ask you about that? Yeah. Did that feel like some, a scene out of like an eighties movie or something? It totally felt like a scene from an 80s movie. It's like that okay. scene okay. when you have those 
two buff guys shaking hands. It's like the after... scene in Predator. Yeah, exactly. Where Arnold and uh, what's his name? Uh, Carl Weathers. When yeah. they first see each other, they're like, you know, Riggs, Bishop, whatever their names are, right? And you think they're like, they're like totally flexing on each other. They're coming at each other. And it's like, oh, these guys mean business. They don't like each other. And then all of a sudden, they like shoot out their hands and they're just like bulging full of muscles and like yeah. arm wrestling in midair. Exactly. After like a couple of seconds of like flexing on each other, they just start laughing and they're like, <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> you always have to have that scene where the guy's like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, that meme, that, that whole kind of thing, that whole scene is what I was thinking when I saw this at the end of the issue <laughs> it totally it fits reminds, man it, it 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 threw me off a little bit because i was taking the scene pretty seriously so when they go and they do this thing where where she's coming at her kind of fast and it just turns into this embrace there was something about that that took me off uh, threw me off initially cuz it just reminds me of this old YouTube video I watched where they kind of deconstructed the whole thing and they were the the whole joke of the YouTube video was who does that in real life? Like why would why why do we have to pretend to hate each other before we like you know have this special moment with each other where we kind of acknowledge that we like each other? Like I don't think I've ever seen anyone in in real life do that, you know? Next time I see you, I'll make sure I charge at you. In, yeah. with an angry expression and then we can embrace we should do that warmly we should yeah. do that when we're when when we go to like our friends weddings or like group get-togethers oh we should, we just, should totally do that we should come come at each other and be like drew i thought i told you if i ever saw you again it'd be the last time <laughs> and then we just charge at each other <laughs> yeah and, and then at the last second we just like <laughs> <laughs> embrace <laughs> you son of a bitch <laughs> i think that would be pretty entertaining for all the observers <laughs> people would just be like i don't understand what's going on do they have that kind of a history with each other <laughs> we could craft an entire world of fiction around our friendship <laughs> man now i want that to happen <laughs> i know we need somebody to get married and invite both of us yeah uh, maybe the next Christmas party. Yeah. <laughs> Labor Day picnic, oh, maybe. Yeah, Labor Day picnic. <laughs> uh, man, that would be hilarious. We got to do that. All right. Was there anything else in the issue that jumped out at you? No, I, I think we succinctly covered everything. I'm pretty satisfied with it. Um Okay, because there's one thing that is of very little importance that I wanted to bring to your attention. Sure, what you got? On page 85 of the digital copy, we have a scene of Marcus and his new roommate chilling in their mm -hmm. dorm room. And his roommate is a comic book fan. He's reading some comics while listening to his music. And we get a little scene of panel that has a close-up on the comics that he's been reading. And we see The Killing Joke. We see the first issue of oh. Silver Surfer Parable, another Silver Surfer comic, and yeah. Box Full of Hell by Matt Groening. 
So I was wondering oh. if you had any thoughts on this dude's taste in comics. Well, the Silver Surfer comic is a classic because it's Mobius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and Stan Lee wrote it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, regardless of that, it's it's just considered like a high point in comics. Um. I mean, I d- I've never read Box Full of Hell, but I do have an appreciation for Matt Groening, so there's that. I am not familiar with the other two comics. The Killing Joke? I didn't even... Where's that? Is that The Killing Joke? Yeah, that's the Joker taking the, camera? the, the photo. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. He couldn't write The Killing Joke on it. <laughs> okay. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to write Batman on the cover. Uh, look, I'm accustomed to Brian Boland's art. That threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't even realize he was into comics until you brought it up just now, actually. Oh, like, you, I had you to didn't turn... notice that panel? Yeah. So, like, I had to turn my head upside down, and when I saw the cover, I was like, oh, that is Silver Surfer Parable. Yeah, man. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's a fun detail right there. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. This this entire character's presentation here, I, I have a feeling that they're going to do more with him, but it's pretty random because he's just, for the time being, he's just Marcus's new roommate, but they don't really have any real connection to one another, so I could see it going either way because it could be like a Shabnam situation where this guy ends up just, because he clearly, so far up to this point, doesn't really have too much affection for Marcus. He's like trying but Marcus just is coming off as a jerk, a jerk. Exactly. So that's another detail, another interesting detail where I'm going to have to question what's, what's going to happen next. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the classroom scene when master Lin was teaching the class about Mao? <laughs> there was something in there that made me chuckle. Uh, I mean, I guess he's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in 2023, I'd still say that that's pretty accurate. The people in China still have a weird amount of reverence for the guy. Yeah. And it ain't a good thing, but. Definitely. I don't know. I think the scene that jumped out more to me was the scene where Maria and Marcus are arguing about Christmas. That, mm-hmm. that That's something that made me contemplate what actually is going on. Do you think that you was know, a real argument or do you think that it was staged for the benefit of all the spectators? I think it was real. Because it's not until later, because even when Maria and Zenzel are off on their own after that, that argument, it it does feel like she was still generally sour about, and it, it's kind of like typical relationship stuff where, you know, one person wants to be kind of enthusiastic about something and the other person just can't find it in them to have that same level of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. See, I feel like that's the kind of chemistry that won't work when you're trying to podcast with somebody. (laughs) That would be very difficult. Yeah. Or for all we know, it could work perfectly as long as, you know, one of them 
as long as they're able to develop a good synergy that's going true on, that's true where one person's the high energy and one person's the not quite so high energy <laughs> i wonder if there are any comic book podcasts like that where one guy is always high energy about something one guy's like the tim tebow of the duo and then the other guy is just some really subdued maybe even negative eeyore type <laughs> i think that's right for some comedy now that you described it <laughs> yeah you're right actually you, you've talked me into it man not i'm a believer in that now thanks there we go there we go yeah. i guess the thing that made me think about this scene was one of the when when Marcus is going through his peyote trip. He he does also have some thoughts about his relationship with Maria. And even though he comes out of it saying that he loves Maria and like, this is the thing that he cares about the most. Like when he's amidst the trip itself, there is a part of him that is withdrawn from her because he realizes, or he maybe not even realizes he tells himself that, you know, her being with him is just going to get, them both in trouble or he's going to get her in trouble you know Mm -hmm. so so i wonder if this is just more of a fracture that's going to continue to perpetuate between the two of them because you know they don't they've already had this pretty rough relationship between the two of them he he's cheated on her and he's had this whole revelation where he decides oh yeah she's actually the one for me and i'm gonna stick it out with her right but you know they're teenagers they're just gonna do what teenagers do and they're gonna be stupid about it so i i wonder i guess in terms of the emotional drama that's going on i wonder if what 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 it's gonna look like for the two of them when this is all over too right yeah that's i don't know if that thought had crossed your mind at all not consciously, but when you spell it out in those terms, it's definitely something to keep an, keep an eye on moving forward because it feels like the story – like I don't know if I think this is going to be one of those happy endings. It feels like this is probably going to be a series with a more bittersweet kind of ending, mm. but that that's just my guess. I Yeah. I really have no idea. Well. I mean, another thought that just occurred to me was, yeah, they, they've had to take this story a long way. And I think it almost felt like the culmination of it was Marcus breaking into the facility where she was being held prisoner and him saving her and them kind of riding off together, kind of a Bonnie and Clyde sort of thing, right? And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, that's kind of the end of it because, well, the guy got the girl and period that's it we're done and we can assume that they're going to be happy but that happens like right in the middle of the series and the series continues to go on after that so there has to be some sort of continuing drama between them right the right it it can't just all be you know sunshine and roses Mm -hmm. so i'm really wondering if that's what he's doing right now if he's setting the two of them up for this division if that yeah. is in fact where 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 he's going with it. Yeah, and it's only going to get more complicated now that Saya has re-entered their lives. Yeah. Yeah. 
I guess now that we're talking about it, I mean, if we take the whole story as, you know, just, I don't know if allegory is the right word, but, you know, if we look at it as a a tracking Mm -hmm. of Marcus's emotional growth Mm -hmm. and journey into maturity, like watching him go from this, you know, drug dependent, uh, you know, just reckless mess to to seeing him to seeing him be this person who has a plan who has his stuff together who has a goal and a, an objective like that's one sign of maturity right and then now it's the question is does that maturity apply to his personal relationships as well is he going to show that same level of maturity i don't know mm. good questions man yeah yeah All right. You want to talk about the special issue? Let's talk about the special issue. All right. We go back to Marcus's first week at King's Dominion. He exudes uncertainty about himself as he tries to fit in. Marcus, Willie, Saya, and Maria go off to see a concert. Victor tags along because he's a, quote, fan. The group have a discussion about their ambitions that transforms into a conversation about what becoming an adult means for high-minded idealism. As they wait for the show, Victor sees someone that instantly enrages him. As the music plays, Victor goes off on his own. Maria and Willie share a moment together while Marcus ponders the ideas of art and popularity and fandom. Victor goes backstage and assassinates a Mr. Kunetsov and all his guards. The first kill this first kill really impacts Victor. In a flashback, we learned that Master Lin earlier had informed Victor of Kunetsov's presence, and the two and the two have a history. Kunetsov was the man who betrayed, whose betrayal led to the death of Victor's mother and his siblings. Later that night, Marcus notices Victor in a daze and offers him some words of friendship. But Victor refuses to accept to accept them, and he runs off to be on his own. The next night, Marcus and Maria talk. All the uh, Marcus and Maria talk. All the thoughts bubbling around in Marcus's head make him wonder about King's Dominion, and if faking it until he makes it at a place like King's Dominion will only end up corrupting him. the end what are your thoughts on how this comic works as a free comic book day issue it's interesting because if you've been following the series there's a lot of little beats and notes that you're that you can see that tie into the larger story as a whole especially as it as it regards to victor yeah um there's definitely you know, for a guy who has been a pretty big antagonist to Marcus, we don't really get too much backstory, and we still don't have a lot of backstory, but we're getting bits and pieces here, right? Just in terms of a little peek behind the curtain of his character and his personality. And, but as a free comic book day comic, you can read this and you can just kind of view it 
without needing any of that context. And I don't think it necessarily harms the story. You can still see this as a story of this guy's first kill and their interaction with one another and Marcus as he ponders what it means to, you know, be young and have these high-minded ideals about what you want to do when you grow up and what those thoughts become when they run into the crushing reality of adulthood, right? <laughs> yeah. So all these things are present in it and they work and I don't think they necessarily trip over each other um, especially if you haven't been reading the series so it works as an introduction but I think it also fits in really well like I don't know if it was released exactly after issue what is this 40? 39? Uh, Yeah like I don't know when this uh, free comic book day comic was released but it's interesting that they placed it here after issue 39, right? After mm-hmm. every, after everything that happened in the last volume and the little bit we see of Victor leading up to this, you know, this is a story that it, it it's literally titled Marcus's first week at Kings. Yeah. So it, it takes us all the way back to the start, but a still, more innocent time. Slightly. As innocent as, for assassins can be right exactly (laughs) (laughs) but that's the thing about it is it's it's set to work as this introduction to new readers but it slots in perfectly where it is because again it, it does the job of giving us additional context for victor and even for marcus and there might even be some stuff in here you know, some plot threads that they're putting in here for like Maria and and Marcus as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I'd have to see what the final, like I'd, I'd have to read the series to its conclusion to really make that determination. But I do think, yeah, uh, as so far from where I am sitting on this end of it, it, it seems to work fine for me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One thing I really like about this issue, yeah, I feel uh, the same as you. I think it's a really great one shot that helps sell the basic concept of the book. So a new reader is picking it up on free comic book day could get a taste of what the story, what the series is all about, what it feels like. It's got uh, the series regular artist and Wes Craig drawing it to perfection. So, you know, visually from a visual standpoint, a new reader can have a good understanding of what's in store for them if they were to pick up the regular series. And because it's a flashback to the first week of King's Dominion, it works as an introduction story because we're getting to learn these characters in this issue the same way that the characters are learning about each other because they haven't really known each other very long at this point. But I think the other thing that really elevates this book as a free comic book day issue one shot to me is the metatextual commentary about art that is kind of the centerpiece of the issue because we have Marcus, mm-hmm. Willie, Maria, and Saya at the concert. And I guess Victor's there too, although he's not exactly with them. Like you said, he's out there to get his revenge on this guy who wronged his family. But this whole sequence of the concert 
juxtaposed with Victor's first kill is another chance for Rick Remender to write a commentary about art. And I feel like we've seen that in a few smatterings of other issues here and there. Like, I, I think back to that one issue where we had a conversation in this little scene at uh, Tower Records, and the guy there was the worker in the store was talking to Marcus, I think, or maybe it was just another customer. Uh, there was a scene, uh, I think they were in a comic book store in another issue. So you get these little scenes of people talking about art and artistic merit, but there's a sequence here that is just totally dedicated to that. And I was amazed that they devoted all this space to um, that concept. And I'll, I'll just mm. read an excerpt from you because I thought it was uh, really well done. Uh, read it to our listeners. But it's a scene where we get these the sequence of two pages that have 15 panels each. So these are like really densely packed pages where we get a bit of imagery, like alternating imagery of Marcus and his friends enjoying this concert while Victor is in a fight for his life trying to kill this older guy who just happens to be in a different part of the same building. But it starts off, uh, well, I'll just read an excerpt. So it's, I'll read starting from this one panel where it says, great music will get to you. Makes me wonder what it took for them to get up there. What did they overcome to get on that stage to bring me this gift, pouring every ounce of themselves into it with no promise of any reward, just a desire to make art. And they must have known some people would shit on them. But can true art be made with consideration to any external judgments? Can't sing your life fearlessly while you focus on the emotions of other people. And if the audience doesn't enjoy it, that's cool. But that's got nothing to do with you. You don't have to, you don't do it to give them what they want. You do it to express what you want, to make your art the way you want to make it. So long as you make the song from an honest place, your people find you. Mm. Someone will identify with it. It might even help them. So, yeah, mm. it goes on a little bit even more after that. But I think y'all get a taste of that. But, yeah, that scene was a well-written scene, uh, especially juxtaposed with the imagery. If anyone gets a chance to look up the comic um, and, and check out that scene with those, with the visuals. It's definitely a great scene that works in, in terms of like explaining kind of the ethos behind it. Like just this idea of questioning whether it's possible to make true art with uh, consideration to external judgments like or are we just creating stuff for ourselves you know and like what yeah, constitutes yeah. artistic integrity and merit like those are things that i feel remender enjoys exploring in his comics and even though this specific scene is referring to music and and this band that's playing within the story i, th I think it 
doubles as a metaphor as to the creator's aims behind what they're doing, you know, because this is something that presumably would open them up to a much wider audience. They're giving away this comic for free, literally for free. Mm. So it's kind of like a, a mission statement in a way, like telling them, telling the reader that this is what it is. And, you know, we're, if you don't like it, that's fine. But we have an audience. Uh, maybe this free issue will expand it. Maybe it won't. But whoever uh, picks this up and, and enjoys it and connects with it, those are the people that this is for, you know? Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I find like, I feel like that's some pretty good honesty, some nice self-reflection from the creators uh, commenting on the nature of what they make. Yeah, yeah. It uh, there's one other section in there. Um, I, I think it's it's all part of the same thing. But one of the things that jumped out at me as you know when he's talking about um all his contemplations is he says something to the effect of um he, he talks about fandoms and how when they get popular enough and they start to accept payment for their work all mm. of the fans that were around essentially start to say that they've sold out even though the new stuff sounds the you know you you couldn't really tell that there was a difference between the new stuff and the old stuff or in mm -hmm. some cases, it might even be better, right? But there's some kind of fandom out there that feels like they have some sort of right or ownership to it where they can tell you and judge you for it, saying that, oh, you know, um, you used to do it for the art, and now that you get paid for it, you've you've sold your soul uh, or this or that things like that you know yeah and he really kind of deconstructs and reevaluates that because you know people artists got to eat too right but are yeah would you really say that all of that is selling out like isn't the point of of it to make something that people can love and appreciate yeah agreed it's it's a good question it's a really good question. Yeah, you know? it's it's something that a lot of indie hipsters, it's a sentiment that I, a lot of indie hipsters would spew. You know, like I I definitely have had conversations, especially you know back in college when when people are a lot younger and take a lot of pride in in being creatures of artistic integrity like there's a sense that mm -hmm. if, if a band is too popular they've sold out if if they make too much money or have production that is really good it's it's bad for for the art you know because true art has to sound a certain way or has to look a certain way it's part of the scene you know like there's this elitism to indie music that if someone if some artist some band becomes too big then you, it's not cool to like them you can't respect them or anything it's like when you two started out they weren't really a big band they were kind of like a 
what do you call it like a, a post-punk band and then all of a sudden over the decades they became at one point the biggest band on the planet super mainstream can't get bigger than that and like they had a lot of fans but then it became pretty cool to hate on them you know but then yeah was the music that they made in the later 80s when they started to have a lot more hits was it any worse than their first album you know it's 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 weird to think about it because i don't think any band sets out thinking oh yeah once we get big we can just make bad music and chill that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah like i found the scene right here and i'll, I'll just read it it's it's one page it goes sayo wouldn't shut up about the loose screws all week i started to see the band on the front of a few magazines a bit a bit back they're breaking they say a bit backbreaking they're saying they're breaking a bit back a bit back they're breaking they say finding a wider audience waiting in line to get in we heard a bunch of kids talking about what sellout cunts they are now how much better they were before anyone came to see them talking tough about how how they'd do it differently if it were them but saya says the new album sounds just like the last one even if they sold more albums it's still probably just enough to get by but you couldn't explain that to their real fans <laughs> i wonder what they'd do in the same situation after years of work would they turn down making some rent money? No. And people like that, they never take the stage. Terrified of a group of bitter pills sitting in the back, snarling at them the same way. Terrified of their own brand of poison. It's safer to look down your nose than try. And the kids in the band who got up there, I guess they deserve to have vomit spewed on them for chasing their dreams. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's a bit of vitriol in there directed at anyone who was detracting Rick Remender for writing Marvel comics. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of an interview I remember watching where it was Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a I think that's another example of it where people look at their early albums and they go, "Man, these guys used to go so hard, but now look at them. They're, you know, they're doing the soundtrack for Transformers. What's yeah. that?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> they're using and, synthesizers and keys and keyboards yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and I remember Mike Shinoda was saying, what did he say? He said something to the effect of, look, I know people like our old stuff, but they got to realize that we're, we get bored too. You know, we want to try to do different things. We want to try to make different kinds of music. We're not here to just do like one thing all the time. We want to be able to spread our wings creatively too, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a sentiment that, absolutely is in line with what rick remender is saying here it's just people just need to have more grace about their fandoms you know yeah exactly and even if you don't like the newer stuff it's not any reason to try and harass the artist yeah yeah because you don't you, like man? the new stuff yeah who, who do you think you are to go tell them after all this like the temerity, like the audacity of this person to be like, I've never played a track of music in my life, but I feel confident in telling you that you're doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, even if they make new music that you don't like, why does that make it 
why does that hinder you from enjoying the music that they've already done that you already like? So yeah, I don't really, I don't really get that. I and another thing that it just made me think of is, I feel like I heard a lot of this. I still hear a lot of this when it comes to stuff like that last season of Game of Thrones. The mm-hmm. amount of people who just crapped on it so hard after everything that they'd gotten to, and I don't know. I I still defend it when I when I'm in general conversation. I mean, I, I don't know if I go so far as to say, you take that back, you such and such. I challenge thee to a duel. You but, should go that far. Yeah. You should. What's stopping you from going that far, Albert? I should Don't slap him with principles? my glove. <laughs> <laughs> you should totally yeah, wear but, a glove just for those occasions. But it's just one of those things where it's like, look, I enjoyed the show up to that point, and they gave me an ending. And for me to say, well, I didn't like the ending because, because, like, okay, maybe you can say that it was rushed or whatever, and it felt like they sped things up for the sake of expediency fine but i don't know like <laughs> that's Why what they did start the petition to demand that they change the ending <laughs> yeah didn't like, wasn't there a whole one, thing where somebody started a petition for them to redo the entire final season yeah they wanted to raise money to redo it and the thing about that is at that point it's not even necessarily about redoing the final season or whatever right it's really about you making a statement to to insult these people it's mm-hmm. really about the about you being emotional and wanting you and you wanting to take it out on on the people that made the show and by starting this petition which has no chance of happening you're letting them know that you're you're essentially letting them know that you are disrespecting them it's, it's more about the emotional pain uh, the, uh, about inflicting emotional pain on these people than it is about getting an actual good ending. Yeah, that's and true. And that's that's more that's more about you being a dick, honestly. Yeah, pretty dumb. I don't respect it. I don't. I don't. No, sir. All right. Did you Any have final thoughts? Else? Nothing else I, for me. I don't. Yeah, I'm. I feel pretty good about what we discussed. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to volume nine. Yep. Well, if anyone wants to chat with us or contribute to the conversation, or if you want to call us sellouts, um, then I'm more than, (laughs) I will tell you this right now. If someone gave me a million dollars to do this podcast, I would sell out in a heartbeat. Scott Snyder, Zack Snyder, any of the Snyders, Todd McFarlane, <laughs> give me money and I will shill for you. <laughs> we would say Spawn uh, is the greatest comic of all time. That we love the Snyder. I named my first child Spawn. <laughs> this is my son Spawn. Yeah. And this is my daughter Spawnina. <laughs> uh, Spawn and Spawnina, what? <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> I will name my son Violator. <laughs> I'll name my daughter Overkill. <laughs> Overt kill. Overt has got kill. a T in my it. Bad. My bad. <laughs> All right. Well, you if you got anything daughter, to say to us. Would you name your daughter Angela? 
I mean, that's the most normal name. That and Tiffany were the two most normal names. <laughs> you can name this your is my son daughter, Al Simmons. Cygor. Cygor, yeah. I would love that. <laughs> this is my daughter, Clown. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so if you got anything that you'd like to say to us or if you have any questions about what we talked about today, feel free to hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you know tweet at us at between the gutters or threads at us oh not tweet we're xing now we don't tweet anymore we x <laughs> oh man <laughs> and uh yeah uh, you can dm us on instagram we're there too so yeah if you're listening to us on something please give us a high rating um it helps us to get out to more people hopefully we make it big and then we can really sell out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next week, we will be talking about an indie comic shortcomings. Heck, we'll be talking about the comic and the movie adaptation as well. So, shortcomings, the graphic novel by Adrian Tomina, and the recently released movie adaptation that was also written by him and directed by Randall Park. So I'm looking forward to discussing it. Adrian Tomina is one of my favorite comic book creators. So should be a good time. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you on the flip side. Peace. Hey guys. Bye.